Let's pray together, shall we? Father, this morning I'm asking you, Lord, to meet us in your love. See what love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be the children of God. And Father, this morning I want us to receive more and more of your love. And I'm asking, Lord, for a baptism of love to come upon us all. Oh, Father, please help us, Lord, in our, in our hearts. Father, that we should find our hearts trained by you. Father, help us, Lord, to be those who learn of you, who learn the type of love that you have towards us, that we might be the type of people, Lord, who show that love to one another. Forgive us, Lord, for the harshness that so often Christians show to one another. We just ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, to melt our hearts and deal with our hearts, that we indeed in every way should reflect Jesus. And I pray that through the things that we studied this morning, we should learn more of our wonderful Saviour. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I think it's uh, time for a recap this morning. You'll remember that very early on in this Fellowship Life series, I actually uh, spent some time outlining what were the aims of a fellowship. And we went through six main aims, and I've gradually been working my way through those aims. The first two concerned our commitment to God himself, and I said it was our 100% commitment to God. And you remember the first two were, were these. First, that a fellowship should show its love for the Lord. Secondly, that it should aim to produce holy, stable, and mature believers. And I've dealt with that in a number of Bible studies when we talked about praise, when we talked about thanksgiving, worship, when we talked about studying the Word of God and walking in the Word of God. And by, by this time, you should have some concept about what those two aims are. I then said that the next two concerned our 100% commitment to one another. And they were, first of all, the aim of a fellowship... Sorry, thirdly, the aim should be to incite one another to love and good works. And fourthly, to care for the poor in the midst, specifically the widows, the orphans, and those generally in need. Now, these are the third and fourth of the aims of any fellowship. And do remember that in the last two Bible studies, I've been talking about body ministry, which actually bridges these two. You see, you can't have a body functioning unless, one, the people in your fellowship are 100% committed to the Lord, and you can't have body ministry unless they're 100% committed to one another. If you're not committed to the Lord, you won't get any fresh manner for the saints. And if you don't, love one another and aren't committed to one another, you won't bother to give it. In fact, you won't spend any time waiting on the Lord as to how you should edify one another. And so body ministry came in as a bridging passage between these two sets of aims. But that leaves us fair and square with aim number three and number four, and we're talking, therefore, about our commitment to one another. All right, one other little thing I'd like to say. In fact, very early on in the course, I dealt with how we should care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. I dealt with that. The reason I did that out of step was to emphasize it, because I find in many fellowship groups, that's the thing that's done um, not at all well. You know, that's a slightly wrongly put. But that's the thing that's done badly in most fellowships. And that's why I emphasized that at the beginning. Therefore, we are left firmly with studying how to incite one another to love 
and to good works. And therefore today we're on the subject of one another and I want to talk about what God desires in every fellowship concerning one another. The instant you became saved, by the way, it was an individual decision. All of the time, up to the point of salvation, you were an individual before God. Most of us had quite a tussle, didn't we? I had several hours at least of tussle before I committed my heart to Christ. And I couldn't do that in a group. Some people try to do it, but you can't do it. You have to see your individual need, then you have to individually think about the claims of Jesus Christ, and then you have to individually make a decision for Christ. But, having made the decision for Christ, then our faith becomes a collective faith. Of course, there are individual things you've still got to do. I mean, you still have to read the Word of God yourself. No one can do that for you. And the tape can't do it for you, by the way. You've got to do it yourself. You have got to pray yourself. Oh yes, people will pray in our meetings, but you've got to do it. You've got to wait on the Lord. That's individual. But our gathering together unto Him is collective. And we move as part of a group of people once we've been saved. And this is why, at the point of salvation, you were made part of the body of Jesus Christ and you were put into the family of God. Now, can you see, that means you're in contact with other people. And what we've got to do is to see that God has put us in contact with other people because he wants us to start functioning with other people. You cannot actually make full progress by yourself in the Christian walk. You can't. All of us at times have been tempted to think that way, but honestly, you cannot. Therefore, let me just read a few scriptures which talk about our, our responsibility to one another. Let's just turn to one of them. Go to Hebrews in chapter 10. <clears throat> Hebrews in chapter 10. And this is a very important verse to keep in our minds. Verse 25, this is one of many verses that say that when we walk along the Christian path, we've got to walk with one another in our minds. In other words, recognizing that God has put us into a group of people who are his family. This one says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You don't have to be a Christian for very long before you reach the time when you think, Lord, I think I can make much more progress if I didn't have these people around my neck. <laughs> now that's true. If you haven't been to that stage, you've got it coming. You really will. We've all been there. All of us have felt, Lord, I, why don't I just spend the time at home and just seek your face? Just get on with God in my own little realm. If you're successful in that, by the way, you'll start leading others to Christ, and soon you'll have a little group round you, so it's self-defeating, actually. But nevertheless, most of us have been to that point. What this is saying is, beware lest the devil tempt you on this matter, because if God's put you in a body, it's because you need the body around you. As you know, in our own fellowship, there is no absolute insistence that you come to every meeting. In fact, I know that there are times when it is legitimate to miss meetings. It's quite legitimate. 
If you, for example, have um, really found your week absolutely filled with legitimate things in the Lord, then it might be that Tuesday evening is a time to wait upon the Lord with your wife or to have a time at home just reading the Word. It may be that God will call you to have a time anyway just waiting on the Lord. What this verse is saying isn't go to every meeting. But what this verse is saying is, beware lest the devil put the wrong thing in your heart. You see, some people get used to missing meetings. And after a while, well, they don't feel they need to go at all. And I find that we've got to check our hearts very carefully. By the way, when I'm away on a Sunday morning and away ministering, Ros will tell you, very often, as soon as possible, and normally directly after lunch, no matter where I am, I ring her. How are you, darling? What was the meeting like? That's what I say. Now, why, why do I do that? Because, you see, I have this fellowship on my heart. I'm part of the collective gathering together. And even if I can't make it, my heart is in the midst. And we've got to check our hearts. If you miss a meeting and you don't care what's been going on at the meeting, I would suggest that Satan actually is working in your heart to try and isolate you. If he can isolate you, do you know it's easy to pick off the strays? It's very simple, and to deceive them. So this says, beware lest you get into a habit of regularly missing meetings. It is legitimate to miss the meetings when you feel really you need time with the Lord by yourself, but make sure it doesn't become a regular habit. This is also written to people who knew persecution. And what he's saying at this point is, look, even though you're being persecuted, somehow manage please, to get together. And behind the Iron Curtain, they meet in woods and in fields and things like this, trying to get together. And this also is talking about our individual lives. Make sure that you don't just come to the meetings. You've got to meet other Christians as well during the week. And please don't be satisfied just coming along to the meetings and thinking that's it. Fellowship life, as I said right at the beginning, is a matter of sharing one's whole life with other people. Gradually come in to that revelation. In other words, this verse is saying, recognize that God's put you in the body, and if he's put you in the body, you need to be in the body. I've written out a few other scriptures to save us looking them up. Can I just read these out to you? And I've taken them from the NIV. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says this, that we should suffer together. Suffer together. In other words, if one is hurt, we should all be hurt. Now, I'm a bit of a lone dog, you know. I'm the type, just like wild animals, if I'm injured, I like to go away by myself to lick my wounds. I don't like people coming around saying, how are you? You know, I just want to recover, and then I'll be all right. But God actually says, no, that's acting independently. What you've got to do is realize people love you around, so share that particular thing. <laughs> Romans 12:5, rejoice together. Don't just share the bad things, share the good things and have a good testimony time and say, oh, I must just tell you, do you know what the Lord's just done for me? Then we can all rejoice. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens. Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish each other. Don't act independently, but act collectively. Romans 15.32, refresh each other. Isn't that lovely? Refresh each other. People in fellowships don't do that too often, and we've really got to learn how to do it. And it's coupled with Romans 1.12, encourage each other. If you've got hours to kill with one another, then you should also spend hours living with one another as well. The negative and the positive together. And we've got to learn what this is. You know, I just love it. Sometimes people in the fellowship just ring me up, say, oh, Roger, I haven't rung to disturb you or anything. I've just rung to say, we really love you. 
or stuff. And that's the end of the conversation. And the phone goes down. It's a great refreshment. Normally it's, oh, Roger, I'm glad you're in. I've got something to blah, blah, and off it goes, you see. And, and sometimes you can get endless phone calls like that. How lovely when we refresh one another as well. And make sure that if you spend one minute sharing a burden with someone, i.e. doing them in, right? Please make sure that you share another minute encouraging them. Ephesians 4.25, forgive each other. Don't just stand there, well, they've hurt me and that's it. You know, because that isolates you and it means you're no longer in the body. And Philippians 4, 14 to 15, to give to each other. In other words, don't think of your own needs first. Recognize you are in that body and don't act as if you're not. Now, there it is. By the way, in verse 24 here, you've got another one. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And when we meet with one another and have dealings with one another, we should say, is what I'm going to do or say going to provoke them into love and good works? The best way to provoke someone to love and good works is to be so filled with love and good works yourself that you shame them. That's the best way. So that they actually go home and say, wow, you know, they're so loving. I've done that and really damaged them. And they just came back with such love. And it provokes you into love and good works. When someone comes around and they deliver something to your door. They've done some baking for you. Or you suddenly come back and the lawn's been cut or something like this. You feel really challenged, you know. And this is how we should start provoking one another. So Hebrews 10, 24, 25 are very important. The New Testament constantly says, act with this in mind. Therefore, start caring for one another. Start loving one another and start dwelling in peace with one another. In everything we do, the body has got to be in our minds. Let me show you another verse. Go to Galatians 6 and verse 10. Galatians 6 and verse 10. And this is talking about practical things and, and the things that we get involved with in our lives. Now look what it says in verse 10, Galatians 6 verse 10, as we have therefore opportunity, as you've got opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Don't try and force it, by the way. If you haven't got the opportunity, you can't do it. But if you have got the opportunity, then do it. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, later on in the course, I'm going to be talking about how we can do good in the world. But you see what this says, that if you've got time to do good, then the body, that is fellow believers, must take top priority. Yes, there are some Christians around you, know, who think it's very good to devote their time in non-Christian pursuits entirely. Well, you're absolutely wrong. Here, it says clearly, if you've got the opportunity, do good. And if a Christian needs you and a non-Christian needs you, help the Christian first. That's what the order is. And we've got to get this absolutely right. Now, why? Because the Christians are better? No. Because they're in the place to actually give you something back? No. What, because they're more enjoyable to be with? No. Unfortunately, that's not always true. Why? Why have we got to give it uh, give our services to the body of Christ first? Well, because they're his family. And you belong to the family. They're God's own family. And when you do it to them, you're doing it to him. Your first priority is the family of God. 
And so we've got to start functioning, helping one another, no longer considering only our own works, our own needs, our own lives. This is the essence of the New Testament teaching, and it's very, very important. Well, how do you do it? Do you know, the easiest way of doing it is to ask God to give you love for the saints. Love is the fuel on which this runs. Now, since I've said that, let me just say something here. I find a lot of people have a wrong idea about Christian love. They're wrong in many ways, but I want to pick up one particular way in which they're loved. I've done this myself, and I've seen others do it. Sometimes you get a prophecy, my children love one another. And quite often, after that particular prophecy, someone stands up and says, brothers and sisters, do we love one another? They ask that question. And then they go into the negative. Or do we have bitterness? Do we have things that we haven't forgiven one another about? Do we have bad feelings towards one another? And normally then, after you've listed all these negatives, you have a time of silence and everyone can seek their own heart and get right. But you know, that's only one side of the coin. Because you can actually be sitting in the midst of the meeting and not out with anyone. You know, you can actually look around and say, I'm not feeling bad about anyone in the midst. Oh, well, they're all right, I suppose. And you can be sitting there in neutral, as it were. But love isn't just neutral. Love isn't just the absence of the negative. Love is something positive. And even though you can have your heart completely clear of all of these negative things, that's not the issue. I would still stand up at the end, yes. Okay, so you're all clear of negatives, are you? Great. But do we love one another? It's still a pertinent question and a very important question. Love is an added ingredient. And I find this, that many, many Christians find life in the body difficult because they lack the ingredients of love in the midst. You've got to have love. Love is something that you are given by God. If you love the body, do you know it makes everything so much easier? It really does. If you positively love them. Oh, suddenly, major things that before you thought, oh, no, I can't do it. Now you become delighted to do those things. It's an added ingredient. I love that little verse, you know. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, isn't it? Where it says, concerning brotherly love, I have no need to write it to you. For you are taught of God to love one another. What a lovely thing. They have been taught of God to love one another. In the body of Christ, we've got to be taught by God to love. It doesn't come natural to us. We mustn't think it does. But we must have that love functioning. I know, you know, that it's my sheer love for the Lord, sheer love for his body and for his work that keeps me going. Right? I probably hear more negative about the work of God than most people in this room. How do you overcome the negative? There's only one way. You've got to be so in love that you don't care. You know, I've seen this when I've done marriage counseling. You know, if they love one another, it doesn't matter about the negative, they'll get through. You see, but if the love's missing, it's very hard indeed. It really is in, in this, the situation. We've got to love. Elders, it's no good you're just saying, well, I feel all right with everyone. You've got to love positively. The work of God comes from this love. I love the work of God here. I love what I'm in. I love the people that I'm among. It's a miracle. An absolute miracle. It has to be a miracle. But I just do. I'm just crazy about the people that I minister to. And it's that love that keeps me going. You can reach a place, you know, where nothing is too much trouble. 
because you've received the love of God. Don't make the error of being negative in your thinking of love. If you don't have this love, ask God to give it to you. And you'll suddenly find everything it becomes much, much easier indeed. Let me show you that in 1 uh, John. If you turn to 1 John chapter 3, this is the commandment of the Lord. 1 John 3, 23, first of all. One John chapter three and verse twenty-three, and this is his commandment: first of all, that we should believe on the name of his Son Jesus Christ. And I take it most people in the meeting today have done that. But look at the second half. That's the first part of his commandment. The second half is this: and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's a positive thing, and it doesn't then go on to say, so if you've got any bitterness against one another, then confess it now. Get it sorted out. It doesn't say that. It says, uh, you receive that love from God. Go across to 1 John 4. Right? Verse 8. Oh, verse 7. Beloved, this is 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. In other words, love should be the thing that shows you're born again. It's no good you're walking around all barren of this love, because how will people know you're born again? If you're born again, why, there are riches in store. Just start drawing on those riches and start pouring it out. Very important. Uh, go down to verse 10, or verse 9, I think. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because he... Sorry, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And you notice God didn't just sit in heaven saying, well, I've got nothing against these people. No, I don't feel bitter or anything. You know, my heart's completely dealt with. That wouldn't have helped us in the slightest way. And you can sit there with your brother in need saying, well, I don't feel bitter towards him. Oh, great, big deal, as the Americans would say. Well, that's really nice. Meanwhile, he's still in his need. God showed his love towards us in that he did something positive. He sent his only begotten son into the world. And love is not just dwelling in neutral in the middle of the fellowship. Oh, well, great, yes, I don't care who calls, it's nice to see them. That's not it. <laughs> love is positive. Love is an outgoing to people, and it's the gift of God. We've got to receive that particular gift. Uh, verse uh, 10 Herein is love, not that we love God, we ought to love him, but that he loved us, that's a miracle, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now there it is. And love, therefore, brings us into a vast arena in which we find that we start functioning in the body. Now you can go through your New Testament, I've tried it, by the way. I finally gave up because there are too many passages. Actually looking at the words one another or each other or together. And you'll find time and time again the emphasis is, look, brothers and sisters, don't act in independence. Act together. You are an army. You are a family. Therefore, start moving out in that type of revelation. When I came, therefore, to consider this talk this morning, I thought, Lord, how am I going to pick out which one another's I'm going to talk about? And the Lord said, the best thing to do is to pick one book and stick with it. 
And as I started reading through, I found that, do you know, in the last four or five chapters of Romans, the, little, uh, two, the two words, one another, are used quite a number of times. So I thought, well, there's my book. So for the rest of today, we're going to be at the very end of the book of Romans, and I'm going to look at passages which contain the little, uh, the two words, one another. Let's go first of all to Romans chapter 12. And I think really, broadly, these cover most aspects of what we've got to do, these uh, particular verses. All right, let's just read a verse that we saw at the very beginning when I talked about the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Now, do you see those two words, one and another? We're members one of another. And earlier on in the course, I actually took this and I spoke at length on this, talking about how at the point of your conversion, you were plunged into the body of Jesus Christ, and all of us are part of the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul here uses the analogy of the human body. Now, I don't want to repeat what I said then, so let's just learn two things from this particular analogy. First of all, if you're a member of a body, do you see you cannot act independently? If you do, the body is not functioning right. I mean, say your hand starts doing what it wants to do over here. That's nonsense, and trying to pretend that the rest of the body just isn't affected by this hand, <laughs> you know, going on like this. I mean, it could actually produce quite difficult circumstances at times, couldn't it? You know, it really could. And we've got to learn that actually we must function as one body, and that means every one of us must be in the revelation that we must act together. Together, as we start moving in consciousness of the fact we are one body, we will see the work of God done effectively. Now, you'll notice, by the way, one part of your body shouldn't start growing inordinately above the others. Have you noticed that? Wouldn't it be ridiculous if a little boy's leg, one leg started growing, and he had a teenage leg, and the other one was still a small leg? That's nonsense. Yet some people think that's what they can do in the body of Christ. Well, I'm just going to cut myself off from everyone else, and I'm just going to be, you know, growing in God like this myself. Well, you can't, you know, not without unbalancing the whole body or perhaps robbing the body of, of who you are. We can't do it. That's why I never trust spiritual gypsies, you know, people who never, ever commit themselves anywhere. And, and you've got them in the body of Christ all over the place. They flit in one place, and the minute it gets too hot, they flit out of that and into somewhere else. And they remind me of a nut in a nutcracker that just as you're applying pressure, it slides out the side. And they go all around from place to place. And do you know, they're the experts on every fellowship. They'll tell you what's good in the fellowship, what's bad in the fellowship. As if they're the authority of the thing. And there they are. I'm the big authority around here. Why, if you want to know anything about that fellowship, you just come to me. I've been there. Oh, I belonged there for three weeks. <laughs> and that's it. Meanwhile, their life never actually gets dealt with. They pop in, they pop out immediately before anyone gets uh, dealings with them. That's not it. And that's not the revelation of the body. Now, that's the first thing. <clears throat> you can't act in independence. But the second thing we learn from the body analogy is this, that criticism is something that should never enter a Christian's mind. I don't mean, by the way, constructive words or a sharing of what is really on your heart. I'm talking about destructive criticism. 
And isn't it funny? This is sort of party spirit. We Christians love to do it. We really do. I remember I spoke last year at a conference in Jungschila in uh, Sweden. And it was a wonderful conference. One or two people didn't like it. But thousands did. Wonderfully blessed. And someone who wasn't there saw me in uh, Stockholm and he said, Roger, what was the conference like? A Swedish man. I said, oh, it's really wonderful. We had such a marvelous time. Oh, he said, and he changed the subject. Then apparently he met someone who'd been there for one day and hadn't liked it very much, right? And next thing I knew, when I came home to England, a minister actually spoke to me and said, oh, I hear Jung Sheila was a bit of a disaster this year. I said, where did you hear that from? And he said, oh, so-and-so in Stockholm. I said, but I spoke to him myself. I told him it was a wonderful conference. Do you know what he'd done? He hadn't wanted to hear that, hadn't served his purpose. And now this man had hawked around to everyone, oh, it's a disastrous conference, that was. Now that is criticism. But do you know, if we're one body, if you actually stab your chest, do you know you kill the rest of the body as well? Don't you? It's no good the arm saying, great, you know, give me the sword, I can't bear the chest. And in it goes. <laughs> You're finally actually killing the whole work. We've got to be very careful. And may I just say this, not only are you killing the whole work, you're killing Christ himself. Because Christ is part of the body. He's the head of the body. Do you remember that when um, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, that actually the Lord appeared to him and he said these words. Right? He just talked to Paul and said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? Or against the goats. And Paul just says... Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says this, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. What an amazing statement. Paul had never seen Jesus Christ. He'd never seen him. Paul had been persecuting the church. But because Jesus is the head of the church, do you see, he'd been persecuting Christ. And when we criticize one another, we are criticizing Jesus Christ. When we are negative about one another, we are negative about him. And we must ask God to season our speech with salt. We've got to get this into our thinking because it really is important. Now in verse 5, when it talks about one another, that's the type of thing that we've got to bear in mind. Incidentally, keep your finger in the place. Go to Galatians 5, uh, 15, where it actually says what I've just said about destroying the whole work of God. Galatians 5, 15. And look what it says. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. All right? Beware lest you don't destroy the whole thing and throw out, throw out the baby with the bathwater. One day, let me promise you this. One day I'm going to do a series in our fellowship called How to Destroy the Chichester Christian Fellowship. I am. And I have said it before, every fellowship has a self-destruct button and many people are desperate to try and reach it. They really are. Some people spend their days sitting on it without knowing <laughs> And people who claim that they're really in the revelation and that they belong as part of the body, without sometimes knowing it, in complete ignorance, are actually trying to destroy the thing they're in. Now, I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay it out on the line. You'll be quite shocked. 
when I lay out the things that will destroy this fellowship. Yes, this fellowship too can be destroyed. Oh, it's so thriving. Oh, don't you believe it? Satan's prowling around seeking whom he may devour, and he'll devour us unless we are vigilant. And that means self-vigilance as well. All right, that's one. Let's go to the next one in Romans chapter 12 and the first part of verse 10. This is another one another. Be kindly affectioned one to another. Isn't that lovely? Be kindly affectioned. Sometimes I wish, you know, that I could see how members of our fellowship talk to one another. When I'm around, they don't talk the same way. I've learned that once or twice. And I'd love to be a little fly on the wall, you know, and then suddenly turning in to an eagle, right? Turning into an eagle. I really would like, love to do that. I'd love to know how people talk to one another. This says, be kindly affectioned one to another. Now, if you're kindly affectioned to someone, you don't go and bite their heads off. You can be honest with them, but that's not the same thing. And here, Paul uses two Greek words for love and combines them together. One is the word for mutual love, loving one another. And the other is the word for the love that parents have for their children. And this is the analogy no longer of the body, but the analogy of the family. What a wonderful analogy this is. And suddenly, instead of it being the clinical body analogy, now warmth has been added. Mutuality has been added, and I think reality has been added. He says, when you're in the body together, make sure your love is the type of love that families have, one with the other. And this means a degree of loyalty, you know. This is quite important. You know the Chinese restaurants and the Indian restaurants we've got in Britain. Sometimes they thrive in the most unexpected places, don't they? Where most British companies would have packed up, they'd gone bust. Why? Because it's a family concern. And what often happens is the whole family just works and lives in poverty sometimes to get this business off the ground. Now, in Paul's day, that's what they did. They lived on farms. The farms were run by the whole family, and every person did their bit. That's why in, in the ancient world, you had as many children as you could, right? You really did. Nineteen was considered very blessed indeed, because then you could actually produce more on the farm. You see, and that was lovely. But if one person let the side down, you let the whole family down. Now, this is what this particular analogy is talking about when it says, be kindly affectioned one to the other. This is talking about being in a family relationship. So we've got to get the image. Look, we are the family of God. And I'll tell you, I'm closer to this family in Chichester than I am to my own family at home. When the fellowship first began, it wasn't true. My family at home was actually my life, you know. Now, I find it difficult. Even two days is quite a, quite a trial. Because now the family of God has become my family. And I find I have more in common with you than I ever have with them. You see, I want to preach the gospel to them, get them saved. Then, praise the Lord, I've got the best of both worlds. You see what I mean? All right, now, the next one another is found in verse 10 and the second half. And this is a very important one indeed. Look at what it says. In honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. And I know that this verse actually causes Christians a great deal of trouble. They don't know how to do this. And some Christians have tried with a false humility. They think this is all a sham humility. Oh, brother, you're a better Bible teacher than I am. Please, you give the Bible study. <laughs> Out the front, you see. And so... 
you know, people on the piano, oh, no, no, I, I'm not very good on the piano. I'm really not. And they don't really believe that. They just think it's preferring one another. Oh, brother, no, I know you're only grade zero, but come on up and play the piano, you know? Or, oh, you comment afterwards, brother, that was really wonderful, what you, that cake that you made. Oh, no, it was nothing. And that's what they think is preferring one another. No, it's not so. The analogy, the picture that God gave me when I was praying about this verse is of a soprano on a stage with an accompanist at the piano. You see? And the accompanist is actually preferring the soprano. Right? You go along there and you've gone to a recital of the Schumann something or other or the Songs of Schubert or something like this and the woman is singing. Now she needs a good accompanist. Now, the accompanist isn't sort of saying, oh, I'm just a wretched pianist, you know. I'm not really very good. I, are you sure there's not someone in the audience that's better than I am? Come along and do, you know, the Liebstraum milk. Actually, that's uh, the combination of uh, wine and music, isn't it? But uh, are you sure there's not someone here? Or all the time, the oh, I'm sorry, I'm such an awful piano player. It's terrible. That's not it. He actually is probably the best pianist in the place, and he knows he is the best pianist in the place. He's in reality about it, you see. And what he's got to do is play as best as he can, but his aim is not to drown out the singer. <laughs> so her name's at the top of the bill. Well, it's Jolowa not going to be after tonight. <laughs> you see? And he does flourishes like this. And, you know? And soon, the spotlight's on him, all the time, <laughs> playing away. Or trying to play so loud you can't hear her. I'm really delighted when her microphone finally gives up. That's not it. That's grabbing the limelight. If we prefer one another, what are we trying to do? We're trying to enhance one another. We're trying to say, oh yes, I may have a legitimate ministry and I might be quite good at it. But today, I want to enhance her ministry, you know. Of course, I always laugh at Victor Borger. He is the classic, isn't he? Uh, really, the person that demonstrates how not to do this. And there is Marilyn Mulvey standing by the piano, and she's going to sing. He gets all the attention. Finally, everyone's roaring with laughter, while this top operatic soprano is trying to sing. Well, that is exactly what I'm trying to describe and warn us against. And this is the key. When we start ministering, we should do it to enhance one another. Those who are on the piano should ask the Lord to give them such an anointing that the praise is enhanced, you know? Whenever we Bible teach, it should be to enhance one another. That's it. My desire, you know, is that soon my own ministry will be self-destructing, that soon I'll have taught people everything I know, and then you won't need me at all. That's lovely. That's my desire in every fellowship I go to. I'm not here to say, right, you got me for the next hundred years. And I'm not going to budge from the front. I'd be so glad when we see Bible teachers coming from the midst of our own fellowship and starting to give Bible studies of a different sort, perhaps, to the, the sort that I give. But we, our aim should be that we prefer one another in honor, i.e., try and enhance one another's ministries. I always remember, Vic, um, not Victor Borger, Pastor Vernbrand. I always remember <laughs> Pastor Vermbrand, you know, when he was first in England, and he uh, often used to say in his little talks, uh, he used to comment on the passage where the disciples were arguing who was the greatest, who was the greatest. 
And um, I always took that, as most of us do, and I'm sure it's the correct interpretation, by the way, that they were arguing, saying, I'm greater than you are. Jesus said to me, he said, such and such. And Jane's saying, nonsense. You're not the highest, I'm the highest. You know? And so they would carry on. Pastor Vernbrand always used to say, I'm sure it wasn't like that. He said, I believe they're arguing like this. Oh, no, you're the greatest. I'm sure you're the greatest. Oh, I'm not, James. You're the greatest. <laughs> Having an argument. No, I think Pastor Vernbrand rather um, overemphasized the spirituality of the disciples. <laughs> but nevertheless, it is rather a lovely picture, isn't it, to do that? So we've got to learn to prefer one another. And this is why never in a fellowship should you have big power politics going on. Who's going to be the top minister? Who's going to be the top authority around here? That's not preferring one another. I have learned this. If we humble ourselves in the body of Christ, God will exalt us. And you know, it's those who get on and beaver away underneath. God will soon take you. He'll reveal your particular ministry. You have no reason to doubt that. But I've learned something else. Unless you're prepared to do the menial tasks... And unless you're prepared to be the slave of all, you're never going to come into ministry at all. So there we are. Okay, well, that's the next one, one another. Let's turn to the next one in Romans 15. Romans 15. Five B. Romans 15, verse 5, and the last part of verse 5. And this is very important and, oddly enough, very little spoken about. Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, or I think as the NIV says, to be of the same mind. And this is talking about the fact that when you're in a functioning fellowship, you've all got to basically think the same way. This includes a sense of belonging. Do you know that a fellowship only functions when you have a sense of belonging in the midst? If you don't have that, you don't have a fellowship and you can't function. That's why many churches can't produce fellowship life, you see, because the people simply go along on Sundays. They don't really feel they're part of the ministry that's going on in that particular place. This unity is so vital. Do you know, for I, I think I could give an example of national unity. It's, I, when I was studying the book of Deuteronomy, I thought it was fascinating that before God actually listed the laws that were to be applied uh, by the Jews in the land, he actually gave instruction as to how to unify the people. He said, all of you have got to go up to the temple three times a year. All of you have got to do this. You've all got to remember this day and that day and the other day. And do you know what he was doing? He was trying to get all those Jews thinking as if they were someone special and separated. And that's why, one of the reasons why the Jews have remained so distinct. Because they belong together. You know, they do the same things together. Now, the moment a nation loses the sense of national identity, you have chaos. And unless there is that sense of belonging together in a nation, you can't have law either. Because if some people say, well, we're not going to obey the law, we're not part of this society. The minute you get that, which is anarchy, law becomes meaningless, you know? And that's why I fear for our own country, because for the last few years I have seen that this sense of belonging together has gradually withered. That's why I am a firm monarchist. I believe for Britain today, the monarchy is still the thing that gives us a sense of national identity. And isn't it wonderful that over the monarchy there's no divide between Scotland and England? Absolutely none. The Scots are thrilled to have the Queen over them. 
So are the Welsh, incidentally. So are the Northern Irish. So are the English. She's a centre of unity. The North and the South are both pro the Queen. And I was amazed, you know, where my father lives is quite a, a Labour stronghold, you know, quite a socialist stronghold, you know. And on Jubilee Day, all the houses were festooned. And so they were in the conservative areas just next door as well. All the houses were festooned because socialists and monetarists are monarchists. Isn't it lovely? There is complete unification. The unemployed and the employed, they're monarchists. And that's a source of, of unity for our nation. Whenever you hear someone trying to get rid of the queen in our society, it's satanic. And it is designed at this present time to destroy our national unity. Do you know, many, many things that have produced unity in Britain have been destroyed already. There was a day when we used to uh, uh, celebrate Trafalgar Day, you know, remembering the Battle of Trafalgar. That used to unite our nation. There was a day when we had Empire Day and Commonwealth Day. You said, why? I remember we used to go along dressed in our Cubs uniforms to school. We always did. Do you remember those days? And it gave us a sense of belonging. They've gone. And that's why it's so important that we still have the Jubilee celebrated. That's why I go to London on the Jubilee. It's part of the establishment of our nation. That's why it's important to have royal weddings. It's important to have coronation ceremonies and all the rest. It's not just a waste of money. Without that, we will find that our nation will start crumbling. These are really important. Now, in a fellowship group, we've got to have a sense of identity and of belonging. This is why the communion service that's coming up ne next month is very important. It's a time when we get together. That's why a Sunday meeting is important. It's a time when we get together and identify together. That's why when we arrange a public meeting, it's essential that everyone feels that that's part of their responsibility. If you cut out of that, you're actually saying, well, I'm not part of this thing. And we're losing the sense of identity. One fellowship I went to speak at, you know, was arranged pretty late. They had 50 of their members going down to a conference at Torbay. You know, the elders stood up and said, all those people going to Torbay, you will cancel your reservations. I was horrified when I knew we'd never do that in Chichester. But I knew what the elders were, were doing. They were saying, if we've taken the trouble to invite a man in to minister, then this is a collective responsibility, and our duty is to be there. I was very gratified. Many came up afterwards and said, we're glad we didn't go to Torbay. Praise the Lord, you know? Now, of course, they should have arranged it better, so they could have done both. But nevertheless, that is important because they're maintaining this sense of togetherness. And we, whenever we have a public meeting, it means you cannot nonchalantly say, oh, well, I don't like him. Never been blessed by his ministry, so I'm not going. If you do, you are actually destroying the thing that holds us together as a fellowship. We've got to really watch that. So there we are, having the same mind. And one other thing I want to say. We often hear that doctrine divides. Oh, mustn't talk about doctrine, it divides. Do you know doctrine unites as well? You know that. That's a positive side to it. And that's why in the early church they were told to steadfastly continue in the apostles' doctrine. Some fellowships I go to, you mustn't mention certain subjects. You know? Because if you do, you're going to get ruffling over in this half of the meeting. This half will be, oh, we told them. <laughs> and then you mention something else, and this half becomes ruffled. And that half then is smiling. You can't mention eternal security people who don't believe in it. You mustn't mention the baptism of the Spirit. Brother, I don't think you should have talked about tongues like that. <laughs> now, if you've got these obvious forms of disunity, how on earth can you function together? Right? 
Of course, you can have disagreements on certain points. It doesn't matter whether you think the two witnesses of Revelation are Enoch and Elijah instead of Moses and Elijah. I don't understand how you can come to that conclusion, but nevertheless, you can hold it. You don't have a major crisis because people aren't going to stand up every meeting and minister on Enoch and Elijah. You see, mind you, it'd be a delight if we could have some meetings on them. But uh, do, do you see the point that I'm making? Basically, we've got to have a sense of belonging, and that means a basic viewpoint that is similar. Praise God, we're fundamentalists. All of us are fundamentalists. We all believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Next one. Verse 7. This is important. It says here, Wherefore, receive ye one another. Receive ye one another. Or accept one another. Now, what does this mean? Accept one another. Well, in a healthy fellowship, you will find there are many different types of people and many different types of personalities. You have got to be big enough to be able to encompass everyone with the love that's in your heart, right? You should be able to say, well, it's legitimate that they're like that, and it's legitimate that they're like that. So we've got to learn to embrace everyone. And I praise God that we're in such a cosmopolitan fellowship. I'm thankful for it. We have all different types within our society represented in the midst. That's healthy. It means we can get out to everyone. Whoever comes in, there's someone they can identify with. It's very important. But don't ever allow this accept one another to be used as spiritual blackmail. This does not mean to say we just accept anything. Right? We don't accept sin in the midst. We don't accept, uh, just accept unruly behavior. We don't accept those who say, well, you've just got to accept me. I'm not going to make any effort to improve. You've just, just got to accept me. Listen, Jesus accepts us, doesn't he? And he changes us. Just because he changes us doesn't mean he, he doesn't accept us. And it's no use. When a chap comes in, he's unwashed, a bit of a tramp figure, you know, and he's sitting there, well, praise the Lord, we're going to love him, we'll lead him to Christ. But then, within a few months, why, he should be the sprucest person in the midst, shouldn't he? Because there is this changing. Don't allow people to blackmail you over that, right? You don't have to just put up with those things. You must pray and ask God, to, to change those people. If it were true that we just had to accept one another no matter what went on, how could Paul write the next one another that I'm coming to, which is actually in verse 14? Here, having said accept one another, look what he says. And I myself am also persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Admonishing one another actually means bringing faults to the person's mind. It doesn't mean a personal criti criticism of them. It simply means that you inform them, brother, is that right that you're doing, what you're doing? And having done that, then leave it with the Lord, you see. I know some Christians who think it's good to be worldly. You know, they really do. You often hear non-Christians say, oh, I like our local vicar. Well, you see, when we come out of church and go down the pub, he's along with us. Right? He gets as drunk as I do down there. He swears like a trooper. That's my type of Christian, they say. But let me tell you, that's not a Jesus type of Christian at all. And I know some Christians, why we even some, have some perhaps around us, who have that type of attitude, that it's glorious to be worldly. Oh, I'm not going to be like the rest of them, super spiritual. No, sir. I'm going to show people that I'm as bad as they are. That's it. 
that's not Christianity. Christianity is in the business of changing our lives, you know, so that we seek excellence in every way, right? This is why I never like Christian swearing. So many Christians think, oh, it's somehow good to have the odd swear word. Oh, is it? No, it's not. Jesus never swore, right? Certainly with Jesus around, he won't, uh, you won't be swearing. In the kingdom of God, there won't be swearing. Who do you think you're trying to impress? It's just worldliness, and it's offensive to those of us who are going on with Christ. And you should ask God to deal with that, right? It's no good either a person coming along who's really unkempt and standing up with the word of the Lord. You know, because if God hasn't dealt with the way you look, then how many other areas has he dealt with? That's the question. It's useless, you know? See, I was all turned out, you know, and everything hanging out, sort of the shirt hanging out, and I'm really looking rough then you begin to say, well, really, is he dealt with? I often get comments about our own fellowship, how neat everyone looks. People often say it's a real pleasure to be in the midst and see people in suits and, you know, and, and decently turned out. No, I don't just mean suits, I mean anything that you can, but they've taken some, some care over their appearance. And, you know, if we were meeting the Queen, we'd take care, or a future employer, wouldn't you, unless you're a rebel or a fool, wouldn't you do that? And so we're coming to meet the King of Kings, and what a delight. There's nothing wrong in it at all. We are heading on for excellence. And this is what we, is meant here by admonishing one another. Where you hear excessive negativism, negativism, say, you're too negative. Where you hear gossip, excuse me, that's gossip. Where you hear wrong criticism, that's criticism. That's admonishing one another. And if we were the watchdog over one another, you know, soon we'd find the excellence just beginning to flow. But notice the rest of the verse in verse 14. You've got to have it together yourself first. And that's what he says. I myself am also persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. And we've got to make sure that, first of all, we are sorted out before we start mentioning to other people. Just to end with, then, I want to go to Romans 16, 16. <clears throat> salute one another with a holy kiss, it says. The churches of Christ salute you. And every commentary I've read, and I've been through them all, right, or as many as I've got over this verse, they all say the same thing. This is a cultural thing. In the East, everyone kisses one another. That's what this was about. So I started looking into it, and I found it wasn't a cultural thing. If it was a cultural thing, he would have simply said, oh, greet one another, wouldn't he? He would have just left it to them. But in fact, it's not true. And I found, you know, that the church at one time of its history, was divided into two halves. The western half, which included the church in, in Britain, and the eastern half of the church. And they both decided that a form of Christian greeting would be a holy kiss, right? That is an embrace of one another. And I would have expected the western church to have dropped it first. And do you know in history that's not true? It was the eastern ones that dropped it first. Isn't that interesting? And then the Western ones dropped it. This is just about three or four, perhaps 500 years ago. And they dropped it because it was spreading the plague. <laughs> That's why they dropped it. Now, if you have the plague, we'll forgive you for not kissing us. You are forgiven. But that's why it was dropped. And the point of this was to mark Christians out as a separate people, even in the way they greet one another. I remember when I first saw it, and I saw Christians hugging one another, I thought, how revolting. <laughs> oh, I just think that's terrible. And I thought, oh, evil, I'm sure that's not holy. <laughs> and you know, I found it was me that was unholy in my thinking. 
It wasn't those people doing it. And since that time, I've learned this, that you know it's very hard to go and give someone a sincere hug if you're out with them. And I believe the Holy Spirit has actually brought back into the midst a new form, as it were, of, of holy greeting, which is an old form, a holy embrace of one another. And this is not just a cultural thing. This means that you take special care when you greet other saints. By the way, the family, the family, uh, the idea of the family is what's behind this. You greet one another as you would greet your sister or as you should greet your brother. In other words, to say, look, we belong together, everybody. Well, do you see, we function, therefore, as a fellowship with this in mind, that God has put us into the midst of a people, and we are to move among them and live among them and have our being among them. Beware of independence in the midst, but above everything, ask God for the gift of love which makes everything flow very smoothly. God bless you all. Amen.